Second Kings chapter three. Second Kings chapter three. The whole theme of Second Kings is covenants and character. We, on the one hand, we examine the promises that God has made to His people Israel, His character. How he, we just sang it. He never fails. He never changes. He always keeps His promises. And then, of course, we have ups and downs when we look at the people of God's people in these in this book. We see those. Some who are good kings who trust the Lord, and then there are those who are wicked kings who their character is not good, and they don't keep their part of the bargain with the Lord. And so, in chapter 3, we're now in the reign of King Jehoram, and when King Jehoram, when he becomes king, he inherited the problem of the rebellion that occurred in Moab. But instead of consulting the Lord, Jehoram comes up with his own plan to form this coalition with Judah and with Edom to invade Moab through the south, through the desert. But as you remember when we went through this, I think it was last week, <laughs> last week, no? Oh, did we not have Sunday service last week? That's right, there we go. I knew there was something. So anyway, two weeks ago when we started it, we saw that the plan backfired. You know, they end up wandering around the desert for seven days because they can't find water. Even though Joram never consulted the Lord on what to do, he concludes that God brought them all here to kill them. Thankfully, Jehoshaphat, the godly king of Judah, asks, is there a prophet of the Lord that we can get counsel from about what to do and what God's plan is? And it it turns out Elisha happens to be traveling with the army. And so Elisha, they come to him and he says, well, this is what the Lord has to say. He says, you're going to go out and dig ditches in this, this wadi, this it's like a, a cut-out area in the, in the mountains where the water has created the, this valley. And so you're going to go into the wadi there where you'd normally find water, you're going to dig ditches. And God's going to supernaturally fill them with enough water to provide for the army. But that's where we stopped uh, two weeks ago, but that's not all Elijah had to say. It's not all God's message. In fact, what, what we're going to find out is that when he gives the rest of the message, we're going to see that God isn't against them at all. That God has a mighty plan for victory over the Moabites. And then when that victory comes, we're going to see how Jehoram handles it. That's going to show us why God gives us boundaries in His Word. So chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 13, and then the story, we'll start our study in verse 18. So this is when the kings all come to Elijah, and Elijah said unto the king of Israel, verse 13, what have I to do with you? Get you to the prophets of your father, the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said unto him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward you nor see you. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him, Elisha. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you may drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. And now we pick it up in verse 18. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand, and you shall smite every fenced city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop all the wells of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. So the final part of here of God's message starts out in an interesting way. He says, and this is just but a light thing. Now, last I checked, and God, all of a sudden, you know, I was, I was there at the house, and there was no food, and all of a sudden, boom, there was food. I wouldn't consider that a light thing. The word light thing, it means something of little account, just a trifle. It's fascinating to me, providing water is something that God does daily. Is, is that not true? 
I mean, it's easy to think, well, that water came from Publix or Walmart or the faucet at home. But here's the reality. What if it all just dried up? Like, what if the rain stopped falling and the spring stopped producing water? You see, God, He is the Almighty One. He gives life, and He could take it away without even lifting a finger. And so, providing water is a, a trifle for Him. And I want to encourage you tonight, remember that the next time that you feel overwhelmed with a financial need. You know, you look at it and you go, there's no way. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at our finances over 27 years of marriage, and I'm like, there's no way. And yet, here we are. So clearly, there was a way. When you feel overwhelmed, rest in the fact that God is the one who it's nothing for Him to provide for you. You know, if you're currently overwhelmed by a financial need, rest in the promise that He shall supply all your need through His riches and glory. Amen? Well, this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. In other words, Elijah tells King Jehoram, you're wrong, Jehoram. God is not against you. In fact, your victory is going to be so complete that you're going to end up devastating the country of Moab. It says in verse 19, and you shall smite every fenced city, every choice city, every, and fell every good tree. You're going to stop up all the wells of water. You're going to mar every good piece of land with stones. Now, we read this and we think to ourselves, man, that's pretty hardcore. When it says here that you shall do this, that is not God saying, I'm telling you to do this. He's just explaining what they're going to do. Elijah isn't giving them instructions on how to handle the war situation. He's foretelling what will happen. And so that will become important later on, so just file that away for later, for right now. But when we get to verse 20 here, it says, And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. So God miraculously provides the water. The time of the grain offering, the meat offering would be a grain offering. It was around 6 a.m. So around 6 a.m., all of a sudden, all those ditches were full of water. It says, and when all the kings of the Moabites, verse 21, heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that, were put on, that could put on their armor and upward, and they stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. The writer says, you won't believe what happened. Behold, there just came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with it. All those ditches were filled with water. But the writer goes on to say, God didn't just fill those ditches with water so that the Israelites could drink. The water-filled ditches had a purpose for the war. For it says that the Moabites, they had taken their stand. They had, they had gotten up and they had taken their stand in the border there. They had realized what the king of Israel's plan was, that he was not going to invade from the normal route, which would be the north, but through the mountains in the south. And so they had taken their stand in the, the word border here in verse 21 refers to the mountain boundaries there. They were up in the passes and they were hoping to somehow slow the coalition down. Being under Israel's rule for many years, the Moabites were not well-equipped, and they were likely outnumbered with three nations going up against them. So the plan was to dig in. Maybe we could slow them down as they enter through the mountain passes. Maybe the slog will even the odds. But the circumstances change now when they take their positions at dawn, and reports start coming in that something had happened to the coalition troops. There's, there's blood on the ground. There's blood everywhere. Verse 23, and they said, this is blood. The kings are surely slain and they have smitten one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. 
In other words, reports started coming in, like, what are you talking about? And so people are coming out, and they look down, and they know there's no water there. This is their land. Like, they know these mountain passes. They knew there's no water in that wadi. Now, surely, someone had seen the coalition fill in the whole valley with holes, but the only explanation in their mind is, well, it's got to be blood. We know it didn't rain, and we know there's no water in the valley. It's got to be blood. This is, by the way, the problem with rejecting the supernatural. You don't have all the information, or you don't have the correct information when you outright reject the supernatural. So, for example, it was very popular in the 1700s and 1800s in Europe, European seminaries and stuff, to say, well, the supernatural doesn't happen, so we're going to approach the Bible from the perspective of understanding things in light of the fact that the supernatural doesn't happen. Well, guess what? You're going to come to a wrong conclusion. You're not going to get the right conclusion if you don't have all the information. And so, for example, in the realm of, of science today, we say, well, you know, science just means knowledge, so the idea is we're, gonna, we're going to dig in on knowledge. Well, you don't have all the knowledge if you discount the supernatural. So you're not going to come to a correct conclusion. Not having all the info or having incorrect info increases the chances of making a wrong conclusion. And that's what these guys do. They said, down, let's get, come out of our dug-in area and let's go take the spoils. You see, by doing this, filling those ditches with water, not only did God provide sustenance for the uh, coalition, but God pulls the Moabites out of their entrenched position, which was their greatest strength in the war. Verse 24, and when they came to the camp of Israel, it says that the Israelites rose up and they smote the Moabites so that they fled before them but they went forward smiting the Moabites even in their country. So the coalition, when the Moabites come down and now they're out in the open, stuck in this valley, the Israelites, they attack and they just, they wipe the floor with the Moabites so that they fled. And then Israel followed them through the mountain passes. It says that they, they uh, went forward smiting the Moabites even in their country. So they get into Moab and it just becomes an absolute slaughter. You get down to verse 25, it says, and they beat down the cities. The demolished is what the word means. They demolished the cities. And on every good place of land, they cast every man his stone. In other words, they would go to a city. And back then, we might have this image in mind that every city like had a big, huge wall, kind of like Jericho or something like that. That was not the norm. You might have a wall, but it might have had just some stone base. Most of it would be wooden. And so basically when they would tear this thing down, it says that every soldier, when he would take a stone off, he would take it and then he'd throw it into their fields that they would use for crops. And so, I mean, I don't know if you've ever done something like this when you, like, you haven't tilled, you know, taken care of your yard and now you've got to all of a sudden take care of it. You know, like there are, there are those moments where, where I, have, I have children and they take care of my yard. But there are times when they're getting behind or whatever, and, or you haven't weeded properly or whatever, and then you go out and all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to take forever. Well, can you imagine if you're, you know, are you a farmer and all of a sudden you go out into all your farmland and there's just rocks everywhere. You can't just plant stuff. You got to get the rocks out. So this is going to set behind the people of Moab. So that's, they're not just coming to attack them and, and quell the rebellion. They're going to, they're going to make a point out of this so that they never rebel again. So they took from all these stones from the cities that they demolished, they threw them into the fields and they filled their fields where they grew things with all these rocks. 
Not only that, it says they stopped all the wells with water. They plugged up every spring, every well. They felled all the good trees. The word there, good trees, refers to the fruit trees. doesn't mean just the nice-looking trees. They cut down all the fruit trees, which if you've ever grown fruit, certain fruits, I mean, those trees take a long time to grow. Sometimes we're talking a decade or so. It says, only in Kirharaseth did they leave the stones thereof, but we'll get to that in a moment. So, just as Elijah predicted, as the Lord told, the coalition spared nothing. They laid waste to Moab, and this was going to set the Moabites back for years. Now, sir, sometimes people read this and they go, man, that's just, God's just mean. That's just a harsh, like, I don't want to believe in a God like that. Well, the Bible never says God was in favor of this. In fact, their actions seem to go against God's command when Israel attacked a foreign nation. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 20 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 1 starts off by saying, when you go out to battle against your enemies. And this entire chapter deals with prosecuting wars. Now, there were two different rule sets. You had the Canaanites, which that was an absolute wipeout policy. This was an issue of, I've been working on them for 400 years. The culture is so vile, the only thing that can be done with it is to destroy it. But there are instructions here for when it's not the Canaanites as well. And those instructions are radically different. Look at verses 19 and 20 of Deuteronomy 20. It says in verse 19 of chapter 20, when you shall besiege a city a long time in making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them, for you may eat of them. And you shall not cut them down, for the tree of the field is man's life to employ them in the siege. Only the trees which you know that they be not trees for food, you shall destroy and cut them down. And you shall build bulwarks against the city that makes war with you until it be subdued. So, if you're attacking a foreign nation and you're laying siege to it, the Lord says, you can build bulwarks, you can use the trees, but none of the fruit trees. And the idea was, is because that's for man's life. Whatever happens after this war, when it's not the Canaanites, the goal isn't just to wipe them all out. So the concept here is they're going to need to eat after this is all done. Don't cut down those trees. Well, Jehoram, we've already established, he's not a righteous king. And the truth is, even though Jehoshaphat is a good king, he shouldn't be here. And so it would be wrong to assume that God was okay with what they did, and I do not believe that he was, and I think we'll see that in just a moment. Now, they did spare one city, the capital of Moab, which is Kir Haraseth, which we just mentioned. It says, they left the stones thereof, howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it. In other words, this was a place they didn't, they didn't want to leave there, but we'll see in a moment why they didn't demolish it. Now, Kir Haraseth was the only fortified city in Moab. It was built upon a high, steep chalk cliff. Um, a crusader fortress was later built on top of the old ruins. In fact, there's about 15,000 Jordanians who live in this city today, and they claim to be the descendants of the Moabites. Now, like I said, the coalition did not plan to spare the capital at first. They opened the siege by attacking the wall guards with slingshot, but something happened that caused the coalition to call the assault off. But again, before we look, get to that, we need to pause for a moment to look at what happened because Jehoram's war plan here is to crush the Moabites to the point that they barely exist. Now, you remember when Israel came, they were coming to the promised land. Do you remember what God told them about the Moabites? Who are the Moabites? Well, 
their start to their history is not exactly a pretty one. Remember Lot? Lot was living in that wonderful, righteous city of Sodom, not righteous. And the Bible tells us, though, that Lot was a righteous man, that his spirit was vexed because he lived there. But Lot also, he never really spoke out against things. And so it's true to say that while Lot was a righteous man and he was vexed by what was going on, Sodom got into his family rather than him influencing Sodom. And so when the time came that God had to deal with the the city of Sodom and the other cities around the city of Sodom, it says that he sent two angels in to go and get Lot out first because he was a righteous man. And so they go in there and they get him out, but all sorts of horrible things happen. The son-in-laws don't want to come, and they don't come. And in the end, it just ends up being Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. And we know that his wife, when they got to safety, she looked back longingly. I, I love how sometimes, you know, some of the pictures, they don't do justice. You'll see a picture somewhere of the, the scene of Lot's wife, and they're running for their life, and she just happens to look back, and it's like, and now she's like a big thing of salt. No, read the account. They get out, they get to safety, and when they get to safety, she looks back, and the word there, look, it refers to looking longingly back. After God had spared her, she looks longingly at the judgment as fire and brimstones raining down upon Sodom, and she's like, no. And the Lord deals with her. Jesus, in fact, he says in one of his teachings, he says, remember Lot's wife? Well, Could you imagine if you watched and like multiple cities all of a sudden like fire and brimstones raining down from the sky and you're seeing destruction all around you? Lot's two daughters, they think to themselves, this is it. I mean, it's, this is it. The world's being destroyed. It's just us. We're we're like Noah. We're, We're like Noah and it's just us three left. And so Lot is terrified. He feels the same way and they flee up into the mountains. And when they get up into the mountains, We know that the two daughters, they got their dad drunk because they said, well, we got to start, create people again because there's nobody left but us three. And they do a wicked thing. And from that was born the nation of the Ammonites and the nation of the Moabites. So they have a distant relationship to Israel, family connection-wise. So when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and through the desert and then finally coming up to the Promised Land, the Lord said, listen, I don't want you attacking Edom because, remember, Edom is the descendants of Esau, who were, that's Jacob's brother. So they're family in a sense. Don't attack them. Don't attack the Moabites. Don't attack the Ammonites. And they didn't. They did not actually fight until they got through all the way up to the Canaanites, the Amorites. Now, Moab, though, they weren't happy and content with that going that way. And so there was a king named Balak of Moab who When he saw the Israelites camping on his northern border, he hired Balaam to come curse the nation of Israel. Balaam, of course, God didn't let him do that, and so he ended up blessing the nation of Israel. But Balaam, he didn't like the fact that Balak wasn't going to pay him. And so he said, well, listen, I can't curse him, but I I can tell you how to get God to curse him. Get him to commit idolatry. Get him to commit some type of wickedness that God has to judge him. And so the Moabites sent a bunch of their priestesses out into the camp to interact and mingle with the Israelites, and some of these women ended up seducing some of the men and pulled them away into the, their temples, their, their various places where they worshiped idols, and 
It says that Israel started, while they were camped there, they started attending these worship services to these false gods, and God did judge them. Well, at that point in time, the Lord said, you need to deal with Moab because now they become a, a stumbling block for you. And so, they did. That's the first time they'd ever been at war with their distant family. Well, there was always problems between Moab and Israel since that time. And so, Jehoram's thought here is, even though God never told them to wipe out the Moabites, his mindset was, I don't ever want to have to deal with this again. And so his thought was, is we are going to open the siege, we're going to attack the wall guards with slingshot, we're going to tear this city down just like we did every other one. We're going to make such an example of them so no one will ever think of revolting against me in the future. And the problem with that type of a scorched earth plan when you're going to prosecute a war that way is that the devastation and hopelessness brings your opponents to the brink. And so this devastation brought the king of Moab to the brink. And so in order to spare what was left of his people, he formed two desperate plans. Look at verse 26. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Edom. So his first desperate plan was this. When he saw that things were too sore, the battle was harsh, it was severe. It's not just that they were losing, but that he saw the king of Israel is not going to leave anybody alive. He's not going to leave us anything. We're going to be in such a bad situation. We need to do something desperate. I imagine that the king of Moab had not imagined this level of devastation when he rebelled. And so he took this gamut with 700 of his best soldiers to cut off the weakest of the three heads, the king of Edom. He thought perhaps taking out the weakest king might open up an option for a new treaty. They might feel the bite of this war as well, and then maybe we can force a treaty. But they never made it to the king of Edom. It says they couldn't, they could not, they couldn't even get there. So they go for desperate plan number two, verse 27. Well, then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. Now, I have six kids. I could never even imagine bringing myself to think about sacrificing them in some way, shape, or form, even in just the smallest way to, to do something for my benefit or for other people's benefit because I'm going to take something away from them, let alone their life. Some commentators suggest that he did this to get his God to supernaturally intervene. You, I'm, I'm willing to offer you my own son, my, the one who's supposed to reign after me. We need supernatural intervention. But note here what the response is to this action. It says he does it upon the wall in plain sight, and there was great indignation against Israel. And they, Israel, departed from him, the king of Moab, and returned to their own land. If he's just trying to get his own God's attention, the Israeli response doesn't seem appropriate. I would think Israelites more likely to tear down the city if that's what they thought he did. If this guy's willing to kill his own people, then we need to get in there now and stop this. What makes more sense to me is that the king of Moab is somehow trying to put, appease Jehoram. You see, if he has no heir, or the one who is supposed to be his heir, well, there'd be no one to pass the kingdom on to. No reason to rebel again in the future. And he does this awful deed right on the wall top. He does it in plain vision of the coalition armies. He wants them to see it, not some God that he's offering his son to. And the Bible tells us that when the Israelis see it, they are angry. 
The word here, indignation, it means anger, fury, dissension, discord, wrath. They were angry at each other. Now, while this word can refer to God's wrath, there is no mention of judgment from God here. It doesn't say that God, there was great indignation from God against Israel. It doesn't say that. And what's interesting is only Israel is singled out as the object of the anger and the dissension. I would think that if God was angry, He would be angry with Moab as well as Israel. But it doesn't say that. He was just, it says there was great indignation against Israel. I don't know for sure, but looking at this, I think the people of Judah and Edom were so disgusted when they saw what the king of Moab did, I think they blamed Jehoram. I think it brought dissension amongst the coalition. I think they thought about the devastation that Jehoram brought upon Moab that they were party to, and I think they no longer wanted to fight this war. And so it tells us that they departed. The, the coalition pulled out, leaving the capital city intact. As we look through chapter 3, chapter 3 started with the, the statement that Jehoram did that which was wicked or evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehoram did things that displeased God. And in this chapter, this is the third example of, of, doing, of him doing evil. God set boundaries for war, made them, spelled them out very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And he violated God's commands about how to proceed in war, going far beyond what was needed because of his own desire to more firmly establish his reign. Now, most of us might think to ourselves, well, I'm never going to wipe out a whole people group. How does this apply to me? Like, why does God include this in the Word of God? I mean, most, if you're just a regular, you know, remember the writer here is writing to the exiles in Babylon. If you're just a Jewish person in Babylon, you're reading this, I, I, I'm not voting to wipe, wipe, wipe a whole nation out. Why, why is this important to me? I think what makes it important for all of us is that it's easy to make the same mistake Jehoram did, but on our level. I think it is easy to justify excessive behavior when I believe that's the only way to protect myself or to take care of my family or even sometimes to stand up for the Lord. I think, I think we as men probably struggle with this more than ladies. But there are times when we feel out of control. We feel like we're losing control or we feel like Things are spiraling in a direction that we can't control, and we desperately overreact to try to find some way to grab back control. And the problem is, is that God's boundaries exist because when we try to do those things, when we try to take matters in our own hands, the Bible says the imagination, every imagination of man's heart is wicked. And so when we try to take matters into our own hands and to hold control of a situation, usually that means going beyond God's boundaries into places and actions and behaviors that are not acceptable to Him, not pleasing to Him. Look at Jeremiah 17 with me. We read it in our Scripture reading, but I think it deserves at least a little bit of explanation. In Jeremiah chapter 17, it starts off by saying the Sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. This idea is that he says, listen, like, what are you doing wrong? Jeremiah says, let me tell you. I mean, it's not, it's not a mystery. It's been written down. It's been something that it'd be, it'd be like if you just put it on a piece of paper and everybody could read it. It's not complex. 
What was going on at the time when Jeremiah wrote this? Well, Jeremiah was writing in a period where Israel, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, was very far from the Lord. They, had, they were experiencing pressure from Babylon, and they were constantly in this mode of trying to somehow wrestle back control. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had come in. He had defeated their armies. He had laid siege to the city. He formed a treaty with them where he would go away, and they would become a vassal state, and he took their king, and he threw him over the wall, killed him. Then the guy he put in the king's place, this guy had a bad attitude, and so he came back like six months later, took him off to Babylon. And then he put another king in his place. And this happened like three or four times. And it's interesting, when you read the story of the very last king, Zedekiah, it said that he came to visit Jeremiah in the prison because he'd been in prison for saying, don't fight against the king of Babylon. Don't rebel against the king of Babylon. God will protect you. God will take care of you if you just do what he says. This is God's judgment and discipline because you turned away from the Lord and you've gone off into idolatry. So accept his discipline and then God will start working in your life again. Don't take matters in your own hands. You'll get into trouble if you do that. Well, Jeremiah kept preaching this, and they were like, well, he's, he's a traitor. He's seditious. He's causing people to turn against the king and against our loyalty to our nation. So they put him in jail. So King Zedekiah comes down, and he visits him. And, and Jeremiah says, you know what you need to do. And Zedekiah goes, I know, but everybody's going to kill me if I do what you say. I think this is the challenge that we face. Again, we may not be Zedekiah. We might not be Jehoram. But we, we reason out and we go, well, if I do what God says, it won't work. And so we think, I've got to go outside the boundaries that God sets for my life because that's the only way it will work. That's the only way that we'll find a solution. We somehow convince ourselves that God doesn't have our best interest in heart or that it's naive to just trust Him and His ways, or that it just will never work if we do so. And then we try to wrest back some sense of control to reason within our minds to come up with a plan that will work. So in verse 6, or verse 5 of Jeremiah 17, the Lord is explaining this bad attitude they have and all the bad times they're experiencing, and He, he says, this is the problem. This is the problem. Cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, your, your strong point. You're going to make your own flesh, your own energy, your own abilities, your own reasonings, your strength, and whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert. You're going to be like this lonely shrub in the desert, and you're not going to see it even when good comes, but you're going to inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land that's not inhabited. In other words, it was, it's, it's so ironic because here's Jehoram coming into the country of Moab and he wrecks it so that the, the, they'd never be able to use their land again. And, and it's almost like Jeremiah is telling King Zedekiah, he goes, you're Moab, after Jehoram was done with it. He's telling Judah, you're Moab, after Jehoram laid waste to it. And the problem is that there are times when you talk to somebody and they're devastated, and they're in verse 6. And then you try to explain, have you dealt with verse 5? Like, like, you know you're in verse 6 right now. Like, it's a bad place. But have you dealt with verse 5, that you are trusting in yourself, you've made your own flesh your strength, and your heart has departed from the Lord? 
Where does the blessing lie? Verse 7. Blessed is the man who, that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters that spreads out her roots by the river. And he won't see it when the heat comes. The heat will come, but it's not, it's not going to touch you in that way to devastate you. Instead, your leaf, your leaf shall be green. And you don't have to be anxious in the year of drought, neither shall you cease from yielding fruit. In other words, it's not that we won't go through challenging times when we're trusting the Lord. It's not when it'll look bad when we're trusting the Lord, but go, oh no, this is not looking good. But what will happen is we'll be able to flourish, we'll be okay in the midst of all those difficult things if we will just trust the Lord. Why is this a problem for us? Verses 9, <laughs> the heart is deceitfully above, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Desperately wicked means incurably sick. There is no fix for my flesh. There's no fix for my own energies and my own efforts. There's no fix for my own understanding. There's no way that I can, I can do enough life or learn enough life to finally lean on my own understanding and my paths will be straight. There never comes a point where I go, I don't have to trust the Lord anymore. I've got this figured out. heart is deceitful above all things. Think about that. I mean, I've known some pretty deceitful people. Most of them work in a certain area in our country that I will not describe by name, except that its initials are D and C. We've seen some… some I'm not picking on one party there either. I get in trouble for those things sometimes. I've seen some deceitful people, but the most deceitful thing I'm going to experience is right inside here. I need the Lord. I need to trust Him. Can't. This thing is not a trustworthy thing to lean on. I need to trust in the Lord. I need to rest in Him. And the cool part is in verse 10, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. Like, I know I know what's going on in the deepest part of your soul. You don't even know what's going on in the deepest part of your soul. But I do. And I give to every man even according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Yes, the heat might still come. Yes, the drought might still come. But if you're trusting in me, I'm going to take care of you and provide for you. Amen? So don't trust your heart. (laughs) Trust the Lord. Well, this chapter started with the writer saying that even though Jehoram was not as wicked as his parents, winners, Ahab and Jezebel, right? Even though he wasn't as wicked or he wasn't wicked like they were wicked, he said he still did, the king still did what was evil in God's eyes. And so when you look at chapter three, he didn't consult the Lord. He leaned on his own understanding. He blamed God for the consequences of his own disobedience. And then he went beyond the boundaries God set for prosecuting a war. When we live like that, that displeases the Lord. I want to close with Galatians chapter 5. I know we're getting done a little early this evening, but I think, I don't think that makes up for all the other times I've gone late, but we'll take it. Galatians chapter 5. Beautiful, beautiful promise, but it comes with a warning. Paul's writing to the Galatians, and he's, he's, he's rebuking them 
but he's also exhorting them. He's like, guys, you started off so well. Why did you go back to trusting in your flesh? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect, mature in the flesh? The obvious answer to the question is no. So he urges them at the beginning of chapter 5, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. He says in verse 7, you did run well. You were doing so good. Who did hinder you, stumble you, that you should not obey the truth? Verse 7. Then in verse 13, he explains why he's calling them to leave behind this legalistic approach to their faith. Why they need to leave behind leaning on their own understanding. He says, for brethren, you have been called unto liberty. God has given us an incredible freedom, hasn't he? I mean, think about it. Like, you don't have to live for sin anymore. You don't have to be a slave to your flesh anymore. God has given us a marvelous liberty. That promise is so awesome. Like, I, the enemy always wants to come to us and say, no, 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 you're not free. And it's wonderful to be able to say, no, I am. <laughs> I am free in Christ. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to do anything that my flesh wants me to do. I can walk with the Lord. I can live a life that pleases Him. This is a beautiful promise, but then it comes with a warning. He says, only do not use liberty for an occasion or an opportunity to the flesh, but instead by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In contrast, though, if you do use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, if you bite and devour one another, then beware, take heed, that you don't end up being consumed by each other. There's a beautiful promise, but then there's the warning. If you don't live in light of the promise and you go back to the old ways, you could end up devouring each other. You see, God doesn't give us boundaries because He's against us. He doesn't give us boundaries because He wants to keep us from being blessed. He gives us boundaries because He's for us and He knows what's best for us. Amen? In the midst of all Jehoram's wickedness in this chapter 3 of 2 Kings, we see that God was still faithful to him from beginning to end. He didn't have to give him victory in the war, but he did. And so, in the same way, God has blessed us in so many ways. So, let's not go and use the freedom that we have in Christ as an opportunity for our flesh to gain the upper hand in our lives. Let's honor the boundaries God sets in his word out of our love for him and our love for one another that we might continue to experience his blessings in our lives. Let's all stand. Lord, my guess is that none of us here will ever have to prosecute a war. None of us here will probably have the opportunity to go all scorched earth on another nation. But Lord, you've, you've given us responsibilities. You've given us, Lord, the wonderful privilege, many of us to be parents, Lord, to lead our families, to lead our kids husbands to lead our, our wives. Maybe you've put us in a position where we're leading in our work environment or even here at the church. And Lord, we don't want to use the beautiful freedom you've had as just an opportunity to have no boundaries. We don't want to end up going beyond those boundaries and then just exceeding, not just your boundaries, but exceeding beyond the realm even of what is reasonable behavior to the point where we end up destroying everything around us. So Lord, we, we bring those areas to you, or maybe we've done that. Maybe we've gone outside your boundaries, or maybe we've, we have gotten like Jehoram, where we've just tried to grab control of a situation and get it back into our grip again. And Lord, if, 
If that's the case with any of us this evening, we, we just choose to repent. We ask you to forgive us, Lord. What's wrong with us? And we ask you to fill us with your spirit that we might stay within the boundaries you've created to trust you with all our heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.